Welcome to Peter's Podcast, where we talk about real yoga, actual happiness, and deep living. Thanks for joining me. Hello, Dr. Mona Savani. Um, I have uh, invited you here onto my podcast for two reasons. The, the primary one is that I adore your book, uh, Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, A Neuroscientist's Discovery of the Ineffable Mysteries of the Universe. Thank you. Which is a mouthful and so relevant to people who teach yoga and meditation, uh, most of whom are listening to this podcast right now. So um, I was wanted... I want everyone to read this book. So that's number one why I wanted you on the podcast so people are aware of it. And then secondly, I would love um, as we go through for you to help us understand sort of what your take is on the relationship between science and spirituality and how the two can live together in less conflict. Mm, yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, for, for people who don't know you or haven't read the book yet, could you uh, tell me a little bit about your own background, yeah. like your own um, science credentials, yeah, et cetera? Sure. So um, I'm a neuroscientist and I was always interested in the brain, the human brain and human behavior. So I got a, my undergraduate degree was in neuroscience. And then I went on to get a PhD in cognitive neuroscience at USC, which is basically when you see um, pictures of the human brain like lit up, like MRI scans, that's what I did. So I did my degree in that. I was focused on psychopathic traits actually, or like just generally personality traits and the relationship to the brain. Um, and, and then I did a postdoc um, in law and neuroscience because since I was interested in psychopathic traits, um, I was interested in like, as we find out things about the brain and behavior, does that or will it influence our legal system and how we make punishment decisions? So, um, so I did that and, and I was never, um, my mother was spiritual, but I didn't grow up in a spiritual or religious household. And I actually, I remember when I was in middle school, I kind of assessed religion and decided that I didn't believe in it and dropped it. Um, and then, I mean, not that I even had a religion to drop, but I just kind of dropped belief. And then, but I was really connected to the universe. Like I was always really aware of coincidences. Um, I had so many all the time. And I, 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 in college, like when things would fall into my lap, I, I would just know that I would need them for later. And it was just a way that I lived. Um, I didn't consider it spiritual. I didn't even think about it. But by the time that I finished graduate school, though, they beat that out of you because they teach you that, um, you know, the universe, this mainstream scientific worldview is that the universe is random, it's dead and meaningless. And then especially in neuroscience, they teach us that any meaning that you create and any coincidences um, is from your brain, like your brain's job is actually to detect coincidences and find patterns and create meaning because that's how we survive in the world. So they, they teach you that really early on and, and, and say like the external world has no inherent meaning. Any meaning that we create is from us in our brains. We create it and we, we um, uh, you know, overlay it onto the external world. So by the end of graduate school, uh, that's pretty much when I, um, I mean, I, I, like I said, I wasn't spiritual to begin with, but, but I was very connected 
to coincidences and like thing, you know, kind of the magic, the everyday magic of life. But by the end of grad school, that was kind of beaten out of me. And then maybe it's no coincidence that by the time I finished graduate school, um, even though it was supposed to be the happiest time um, because I had finally gotten this degree I'd been working for years <laughs> towards, uh, after that, I felt, it, it, you know, it was probably part of that too, like the end of a, working towards a, a long-term goal was suddenly over um, and then the magic was gone. And so I just fell into kind of a not great <laughs> era, I would say, of my life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you, um, when you are talking in your book, you talk a lot about the neuroscientist worldview and some of which you just summarized uh, a moment ago. And one of the things that stood out to me was you said that um, neuroscientists are, are trained to be skeptical because they understand how the brain works so well at doing the kinds of things it's almost like tricks that the mind will right. play because it's it needs an explanation of things could you elaborate on that a little yes. bit yes um yeah so the um well i don't want to go into all the details but i will just say that yeah our brain looks for as i mentioned briefly coincidences so it has a lot of information coming in and first of all we have to filter that information because it's too much so our brain already needs to filter what it thinks is relevant for you. And what's interesting about our, our biology is that that's different for everyone. So it's based on our past experiences and our current goals. Um, so your brain has all these fine-tuned filters to be like, oh, I'm really interested in you know money opportunities right now. So I'll be like fine-tuned to look for those. Um, and then especially as everyone now knows, um, or it's been talked about in, in uh, pop culture a lot more, like our early childhood experiences weigh heavily on how our brain filters develop because your brain is more plastic, so to speak, when you're younger. So each of us has these really individual filters um, that so all this, there's, you know, if there's like a hundred things coming in, your brain is going to filter it down to let's say 25 things that it considers relevant to take in and discards the rest, but those 25 things will be different for everyone. And then when it takes in that information, it starts to create correlations and meaning, again, based on what you know and what you've been exposed to. Um, and some of those are really, they, it, and it uses shortcuts to save energy. So a lot of the biases that we have and people are familiar with from psychology, like confirmation bias, so, which is the most um, famous one I think that people use to discount spiritual things, um, is saying like you believe in spiritual phenomena, so you look for it, and anytime something happens that you, you know, you regard as spiritual, you categorize it as spiritual. Anytime it's not, you you kind of discard it, and so you you keep confirming your own bias of oh, all these magical spiritual things keep happening, um, but really it's your brain's filter, and I think that's the one that's most commonly used um, to to discount like anything magical and to be fair your brain does right. do that <laughs> it does do it does have these shortcuts their heuristics these biases to just save energy it's like we can't you know it would take too much energy to sit and sort through everything so just make shortcuts and it'll just be like oh everyone who drives a prius is a bad driver like i decided i've had two you know like two incidences <laughs> with prius drivers now they're all bad and it takes um kind of a lot to update your 
your your <laughs> biases, unfortunately. Like it takes more energy to update them to rewire you. Right. But yeah, so that's so there are a lot of um, and it creates um, also there's this interesting thing. So our left, I won't go into all of it, but th- there's this interesting distinction between our left and our right brains where. Our left brains um, are usually, in most people's society, that has speech. Um, and language, more generally, is in both, but speech is in the left. And so when you have patients, we used to have patients back in the day that would have the wires that connect the two hemispheres. They would have them snipped for reasons like they have epilepsy, intractable epilepsy. So when you have- so a, the corpus callosum? Yes, the corpus callosum. So when, mm. you, when you disconnect the hemispheres- we call them split brain patients. And this is when you can see the brain, even if the left brain specifically, even if it doesn't have the answer and it doesn't have all the information, it just creates a story. And so you can see that in these patients where I won't get into the details of the experiment, but basically you would ask them a question like, um, let's say, so you, let's say you present information to their right brain, such as a cup of water. And it can't communicate to the left in these patients. So the, the left brain that has language doesn't know why it's drinking water. So, but then if you ask the person, like, oh, why did you, um, why do you, why did you ask for a cup of water? Or why did you draw a cup of water? The correct answer would be, oh, the the researcher gave it to me, or the researcher requested it of me. But the left brain doesn't have that information, so it just makes up a story and says oh, I must have been thir- thirsty. It deduces something. It, and it kind of takes, right. oh, usually when I ask for a cup of water, it's because I'm thirsty. So that must be the case here. That must be the answer. And But when it comes out, it, 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 all those words don't come out. It just says, oh, I, I must have been thirsty. <laughs> and so, right. so the brain does right. like make shortcuts, um, lie in some instances, not like nefariously. It's just its job to have a story, to have an explanation. To have an mm-hmm. answer. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. So um, so you alluded to the fact that after all your studies, you had a, a bit of a, a crisis of purpose and, and whatnot. And this, uh, from what I read, st- you started to have reasons to look into what before was a taboo piece of information, this whole notion of the universe having some kind of way of communicating. Yes, yes. So my, um, I'm Persian. So in our, in our heritage, we have a lot of spiritual um, traditions that I, I honestly didn't pay attention to and didn't really consider like, I don't know, spiritual. But one of them was divination. So my grandmother and my mother would use coffee grounds um, to divine things about your past, present, and future. And they were my um, my grandmother was very good, and then my my mom still <laughs> still is really really great. So she would read my coffee for me, and I um, at first I ignored it, but I would take notes. You know, like a little. This was in graduate school, and I was just starting graduate school. I would take notes and um, noticed over time that she was more right than she was wrong. But I. Uh, so I came to trust them and, and believe in it, but I couldn't explain it with science. And I really couldn't explain it with science because it was symbolic. And it was something you, my, my mom had to learn from her mom. Like there were these symbols, like if a turtle shows up, it would mean that the thing that it's related to will happen slowly because turtles are slow. Um, and so things like that. So we, she had to, and she would explain it to me. And I remember being like, um, like, 
there was no framework in science that I could use to understand something like that because um, our framework is so reductionistic and materialistic right. and, I, you know, definitely not symbolic and kind of like as a whole, right? A symbol as a whole. And I really couldn't understand it. It like would, you know, fry my brain if I tried to think about it. So I just lived in cognitive dissonance and didn't pay attention to it. But then after I graduated, um, actually a few years later, I had like, and I think up to that point, everything was just kind of fun. You know, my mom would be like, oh, you know, uh, I don't know. She would, it was all positive. But then one day um, she told me she, she was like, she got uncomfortable and told me, I think you should expect to receive some, some bad news. And she's like, I don't want to tell you this, but it keeps coming up. And I feel like now I have to tell, warn you. And so uh, she wouldn't tell me what it was, but for six weeks, she kept, it kept coming up. And the, the more it comes up, the more likely it is to happen. So then six mm. weeks later, um, one of my professors at USC was killed by one of the students. And it was someone I had worked with on a dissertation, part of my dissertation experiment. So the whole thing was obviously upsetting, but the fact that um, the coffee predicted a death, which later my mom said, she's like, oh, I saw the symbol for a death. She's like, but she's like, but it was mm. such a unique symbol that I'd never, um, she's like, I've never seen anything like it before. So I didn't want to tell you because she's like, I actually didn't know how to interpret it. Um, and so, yeah, so that freaked me out a lot. It really, really upset me because it was a death, right? It was like the information of this person's death, like flowed back six plus weeks into your coffee. Yeah, and and I just yeah. couldn't understand, and it was really upsetting to me that 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 was the case. And then I I wondered about fate and destiny, but at that time I was too busy. I had just started a new job, and I was just too busy to think about it. And I mean, I probably just wasn't really ready to, t to tackle it anyway. So I just ignored it yeah. and lived with that discomfort um, until a, a few years later, then a relationship ended. And then my mom had seen like, oh, it would be positive. Um, but then I didn't think a breakup was positive. So I was like, you were wrong. <laughs> um, and then I wondered about, you know, what is this? Like, how does it work? Is it always right? Is it always wrong? What What are the variables? You know, as a scientist, I was like, what are the variables that determine how right or how wrong it is or what shows up in the coffee. Um, I still am, I still, you know, I'm still like a student. My mom still reads my coffee and I still am always curious about what shows up and what doesn't because not everything shows up, you know, so yeah. it's pretty fascinating. Have you gotten good at reading yourself? I can see certain things. I'm not like my mom. It's really funny because I'll point out things, you know, or she'll be like, oh, this, and then I'll tell her I can't see it and she'll say it's advanced. <laughs> Like, okay. <laughs> Thanks. Cool. I'm the yeah. doctor, mom. <laughs> yeah. That's great. She's like, this is too advanced for you. You won't be able to see it. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so uh, again, I, I really want people to read the book because it's so chock full of so many interesting things. But um, I'm coming from a yoga background where like spirituality is like de facto, you know? And so mm -hmm. to me... Um, I'm always trusting all of these kinds of spiritual things, like being able to have intuitions about things, being able to have experiences, uh, trusting things that come to you, um, 
you know, a kind of uh, ability to tap into a wisdom that maybe you didn't get from studying. It's just appears and things like that. So um, one of the things that really intrigued me about your book was the way that you uh, eventually got into a really, seems to me, incredibly rigorous survey of so many different kinds of research around all of these qualities. Um, could you sort of, I, I don't want to, it would take us a whole book's length to talk it yeah. through, but maybe to just summarize a little bit of how you've got into it, how you approached it yeah. and, and what it brought you to. Yeah. So I, I, okay. So I was like this symbolic divination reading works. So I started from there. Actually, I didn't fully accept that it worked. Um, it took me a long time, I think. But um, and I think that's just how it is for people who are in Western culture. It takes a lot. But so I started there. And then and then I had a, my dark night was uh, when that relationship ended. Um, it was like the, I was already having an existential crisis. Uh, I had already, like I had, already ha had a lot of things that were piling up and that was like the final, um, I think of it as like the last uh, leg of a stool that was knocked out. And then I was for the first time, like felt despair and lost hope and optimism, optimism. And was the question kept coming into my mind of like, what is the point of this life? Like, why do we do this? And so then from that place, my, I, I live in Los Angeles and my friends had gone to psychics and intuitives, which, and I never partook because I didn't believe in it or needed it, but they started taking me to psychics and um, just out of curiosity, because I was like, well, I know my mom can do this thing, but like, is this a real skill that people have? And from those experiences, um, yeah, I just, I was like, no, this is like a real thing and it's really strange, but I, but I didn't believe that anyone had studied it because that's kind of what you hear like in cult, mainstream culture that no one's ever studied it. Um, so I didn't even bother to look for research, which is the funny thing. Instead, I decided to start a personal project of like, oh, I'll just interview the intuitives myself and because I, I want to I know what they're feeling and seeing. Like when they say I see, are they seeing with their eyes or is it in their mind? Um, so I started interviewing them. And then I started... Uh, I was curious if my scientist colleagues were spiritual or religious. We had like, none of us had ever talked to each other about this stuff. So I interviewed them um, and it turned out that a lot of them were very open-minded and they were just like, yeah, like there's so many things science can't explain. Like <laughs> this is why we all come into science. Right. Um, and then it was through those interviews that I think I, somebody, Oh, this, I remember it was, um, I heard an interview by Chelsea Handler, who's an American comedian of Laurelyn Jackson, who's a psychic medium. And Laurelyn Jackson mentioned um, the Winbridge Institute, the research center. So I looked that up and it was a center founded by a like, toxicology PhD, but who studies mediumship and psychic phenomena. So I immediately contacted them and spoke to the co-founders and then they gave me a huge reading list. They were like, oh, you know, there's been so much research done on this. It's basically like a very well-known phenomena. The science is solid. Here's papers huh. and books and go do your reading. And so they gave me a huge list. And then that's Did when that shock you, obviously? Completely. Well, first of all, I don't think I believed him. I was like, oh, I'll be the judge of that. You know, I'm like <laughs> arrogant. So I was like, okay, let me see where these papers have been published. Or like, let me read the designs and 
and I'll be the judge if, if they were good or not. Right. Um, but he was right. They were, <laughs> there was so much research um, and they were good scientific designs. They were, many of them were actually similar to what we use in neuroscience and psychology even today. So, uh, and like unconscious responses, which I'm really interested in because that's not something you can fake. Um, so, and by that, I mean, like we measure heart rate and we measure sweating off people and we consider mm-hmm. those like automatic responses from people. So you can elicit those in react in advance of someone seeing something and that that's still a psychic phenomena and that's incredible. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I read the papers and I was just blown away because there really had been so much and um, I couldn't stop reading because there was, literally over a hundred years worth. So it took me a while. So it started there. Um, and then I branched off, you know, then I started listening to podcasts and then, you know, they'd refer to other people. Then they, the reincarnation research at the university of Virginia. So I read that and I was really interested in past life regression because, um, on that podcast interview between Chelsea Handler and Laurel and Jackson, they had mentioned many lives, many masters by Brian Weiss. And so, um, that book was really the one also that tipped me like, because he was Yale and Columbia educated. He was a psychiatrist. He was an atheist. He was a skeptic. And by the end of like his session with this one patient, he was <laughs> suddenly curing this patient um, through reliving a past life. And that really, really interested me from a healing perspective, like a neuroscience, psychology, biology perspective. I was like, this is like, how, who, how can we explain this? So, so I went down that rabbit hole too. Um, I read a lot of the past life regression and that, I mean, that even convinced me more because, um, these were people who are doing a practice, right? Like it's one thing for scientists in a lab to be like, I'm just going to explore this and this doesn't affect anyone. You know, my findings will be published in a paper and nothing will come of it. But these were, um, you know, like Brian Weiss and Roger Wolger and Michael Newton were all PhDs who didn't necessarily believe. It sounds like a lot of them stumbled onto it, but found it so useful that they ended up using it in their practice to confidently heal thousands of patients. And that to me Amazing. just spoke a lot to the power of it and the value of it. And I thought this is, it doesn't, I was like, it doesn't even matter if the spiritual part's not true. It's true enough that it elicits a healing in the person. And we should, that's a phenomenon that we should pay attention to. Right. But in in addition to like the potential, like archetypal, whatever, there's actual research that is hard to refute in terms of people's experiences yes. as well that you bring up in your book. Oh yeah. Yeah. And there's all kinds of like, even for the past life stuff, I, the things that would convince me were like two people would recount the same past life and they, they wouldn't know each other. Um, or, and you would have, you would see a lot of that kind of thing, which is just too difficult to explain in any other way. Um, and especially with the reincarnation research too, from the university of Virginia, which is done with children. I think, between the ages of two and five, I think for 65 or 70% of those cases, they, they can actually go back and like, uh, find the identity of the person the child is describing. It's that accurate. Um, and they've done this for years and years. So they have a, you know, um, bulletproof, a protocol for doing this. So, yeah, so it's, it is after digging into all that, um, you really can't, 
think of another explanation for it. Yeah. 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 That, that's just amazing. Um, I, I say it's amazing, but like I say, coming from where I come from, I just always accepted all of this stuff, but it's, it's such a treat because in my field, I end up with people who come out of like daily normal lives and they come into yoga and we start talking about some of this stuff and they're like, what? <laughs> and so uh, the, the uh, you know, the surveying that you've done and everything is just so delightful. And I've been quoting you for months uh, in classes and whatnot. So it's, 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 uh, it's been very helpful. It's nice to have, I think. I think that for people like me, um, you know, it's a personal choice to believe, right? To believe in anything. And in my case, though, the training and, well, as I say in the book, in the end, it ended up being my identity. That was a, really what was a threat, <laughs> was being threatened. Right. So, yeah, it's, and it's, it's just like some people have more or less of that and are more willing to accept things yeah. that work for them. But for yeah, me, I, I need I should, it. Yeah, yeah, and I should clarify, like you say, you're very, very clear in the book that there was like an old you and this new you that was unfolding and that mm -hmm. the old you is as skeptical as anybody I've ever met, right? Yeah. Yeah, she, she's still here. <laughs> she's still, she still comes around. She's always here. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there was, um, yeah, and she, she, it's like weird talking about in third person, but yeah, that identity was very, um, uh, did not want to let go and was like, I have worked hard <laughs> to get here to where we are. And I refuse to just let you throw this away. But um, like, I, I think I say in the book, if not, I'll just say it now. But yeah, but I was happier than I had ever been, than I had been in a long time. So it was like my soul was happier than it had been in so long. But my ego was threatened and not happy. And it was really interesting to watch even that that distinction happen. And I was like, what is going on? I thought my ego was me, you know? And uh -huh. so, yeah, so to, to watch that all unfold was, you know, just part of the part of the lesson. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Can can I pick your brain a little on um, like this distinction? You've said a couple of times psychology and neuroscience. Could you distinguish those two because um, sure. they're very different? Right? Yes, yes, um, yes. So in neuroscience, which is um, so the way that neuroscience is taught, I should say, in our schools right now is it focuses very much on molecular, um, the cells, the individual neurons, how they connect to each other, the systems that they make up, which are like our central nervous system or our autonomic nervous system. And then the reason I chose cognitive neuroscience was because it was a little bit less that I had already done a lot of the cell and molecular in undergraduate, and I wanted something higher level, like human behavior. That's why I chose cognitive neuroscience. But then when I went into cognitive neuroscience, it was a lot of like motor sensory. So it's like, like I mentioned before, you, you, things come in through your senses, your brain processes it, and then might put, make an output, which is a behavior or a movement, which is what we call motor. motor. And so sensory, it's a lot of sensory motor. Um, and even when I chose, you know, I chose personality traits, the uh, correlation between personality traits and brain function and structure, but I had to go learn about uh, psychopaths because that's what I, my topic was. I had to go learn about all of that on my own. No, you know, there were no classes on it, on any of that. So I, be, I became aware as I was learning neuroscience that the only psychology that they would teach us was 
as I mentioned before, like the biases, these kind of perceptual biases that we have, because you need to know those when you're doing your experiments to control for that. But I didn't like, I didn't know a single thing about clinical psychology at all. Like, except for, um, except for the psychopath, like the psychopathy checklist, the things that relate to personality that I knew, but I didn't know anything. And then I remember as I was going through this journey, um, this happened because of the past life regression stuff that I was reading about. I was like, you know, come to think of it, I don't know. Um, how else would someone treat anxiety? You know, uh, like what do people use? Um, what kinds of therapies are used? What, what kinds of methods are taught in psychology courses today? And the answer, it turns out, is that the majority of programs focus on cognitive behavioral therapy, which is... Um, only, well, I won't get into it, but it's not, it's not the, um, it's the most evidence-based, but it's, it's, some would argue it's the most effective, but it's not for every um, scenario. But anyway, I didn't know any of that. And so I remember when I was reading about the past life regression stuff, I just realized I don't know anything about clinical psychology. I don't know anything about different, you know, states of consciousness, um, like all these things that I was, because I would, re I was reading about psychedelics too. And I just thought there's so much, I don't know. I'm like, how can I even have a model of the human brain when I am missing so much of the human experience? And then it just became this, um, point of annoyance for me and like irritation <laughs> that our training programs in neuroscience don't, don't, um, focus on that. And I, and I thought, especially as I, myself, uh, would meditate and get into altered states and try psychedelics, I, I thought, came back thinking, oh my God, we don't know anything. <laughs> we don't know. We know, you know, like human consciousness is this much, like we know a tiny sliver because we're only focused on normal waking consciousness. When we talk about neuroscience, there's, few, you know, only a few labs focused on sleep or dream or anesthetics and those are not even the interesting states of consciousness so. wow and you you mentioned in your book that this uh terminology like the easy problem and the difficult problem i think you called it about yeah. like what neuroscience is focusing on sort of like seeing what the mechanisms of things are but not necessarily knowing what it means yes yes so this um it's called the easy and hard problem of consciousness and it's the hardest problem quote unquote, in or mysteries in all of science, but especially in neuroscience. And what it means is we're very good at measuring the brain, right? We're good at measuring function and blood flow and stuff. And we can describe it. We could say your amygdala is active. Your, it's connected to your prefrontal cortex. But all we're doing is describing and correlating that with your um, conscious experience. But we can't measure what it feels like to be you. Like me sitting here talking to you or me looking at the color red or a sunset or eating an ice cream or all the ways that when I close my eyes and I know what it feels like to be me, we don't, we can't connect that, which is we call phenomenal. We can't connect that to um, the firing of our neurons yet. Like we can correlate the experiences, but we actually can't even measure this phenomenal consciousness well enough to tie it back to neurons and differentiate it between people. So like, I'll never know what it's like to be you. <laughs> You'll never know what it's like to be me because, uh -huh. you know, it's individual to each of us and we, we can't measure it. We try with these surveys that we create, which like 
dumbs down your entire human experience to like 15 questions, but right. we, we can't. And so there it's called the, the easy problem is that is saying, uh, when you're afraid, when you tell me you're afraid, your amygdala lights up, that's the easy problem. But the hard problem is what, what is the actual link between your feeling state, um, and like the neural correlate, like what, is, what, what in the neuron makes you feel afraid we is a hard problem right. so yeah it's I the get biggest a problem fr- i get a little frustrated when i hear neuroscientists talk about things we could do or th- what, describing something that's happening because it almost seems like the the that information about oh the amygdala is getting a more blood flow that's what's happening. But really the the only thing that matters is that you're afraid or you have anxiety or whatever. And that's just like this extra dump yeah. of language on top. But maybe I'm missing something. No, it, it sounds I, very exciting or very, you know, important, but I don't know yes. what I gained from it. <laughs> no, I completely agree. And I've always felt that way. That's actually part of the reason why I left neuroimaging work is because I just felt like we weren't actually, in my opinion, doing much, like besides describing what the brain is doing, which is a worthwhile thing for people to do, but it's not everything. And I get really frustrated too when I hear, I mean, I cannot listen to neuroscience podcasts. They drive me nuts um, because you hear a lot of this, a lot of, um, oh, you're just afraid because your amygdala is firing, but that's not true. Why is your amygdala firing? There's a reason. <laughs> There's a reason um, right. tied, right. And that's, that's where tying psychology back in works because then that's where you tie in early childhood experiences. So why did your brain wire the way it is that this trigger causes your amygdala to fire? Yes. It, and again, it's you're not afraid because your amygdala is firing. That's a correlation. But there's another, there's a reason behind that, right? There's a why. And and when I talk now or write, I try to emphasize this a lot because you see it missing in a lot of neuroscience. The only thing neuroscience and most of science does is describe physiological processes. That's all we do is describe we can't tell you why. We can guess. We can use evolutionary biology to make educated guesses, but nobody can tell you why for certain, right? So it's like right. it, it is time for us to own up that we're just describing and making our best guesses. But um, yeah, but it, it should never be the final word on something, right? And I, I mean, of course, that said, there's been a lot of information that does affect like what behaviors might help this or that. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to discount it, but no, and I also yeah, find I it frustrating. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, um, I was um, impressed. Like as I go through there, there's this uh, term in, in yoga called Siddhi. And I know you've done some reading in yoga as well, but like Siddhi is like pa- powers or the abilities that mm-hmm. you have as you do a practice for a long time. And, um, I've, I've heard Paramahansa Yogananda's book that's called Autobiography of a Yogi. I've heard it called a fantasy book. And yet many of the things that you study are, are totally in there. And, and, um, you, you describe a lot of the research that is about either receiving mental information or projecting Mm -hmm. mental information, which breaks with the neuroscience materialist model. Yeah. And yet there's tons of, of data on it. Yes. Yeah, there is. That was, 
Um, I think that's what's kind of interesting for me in this journey was since I was a neuroscientist, it was really, really difficult for me to understand these phenomena. But And you're right, because that's what it is. I mean, and the funny thing is, I didn't write about this in the book, but I, I used to have precognitive dreams when I was young, and I just stopped having them after graduate school. Of course, now they've come back full force, but uh-huh. a lot of other things have too. But the, um, it, it is... So at first, I couldn't get around that, but then I started reading a lot of different models of consciousness in the brain. And I don't know if maybe the first one I encountered was Aldous Huxley's Mind at Large in his book. Um, Oh, shoot, I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, one of his books, um, The Doors of Perception, I think. Um, Yeah, so he, so he talks about that and kind of like the mind being a filter that actually consciousness is external, and it filters through our mind. Um, And I remember being like, that's not possible. (laughs) But as I read more and more, I found, I mean, I found a whole group of scientists and physicists who are basic, they call themselves post-materialists, which means they're moving past the materialist paradigm. And once you do that, um, you open up the possibility for other models. And a lot of them have published models saying consciousness could be this energy field that interacts with our biological brains in this way that filters information. So I've read a lot of actual theories in actual scientific um, journals proposing this. And I think we're starting to see a little bit more of that now because the um traditional or the mainstream models of consciousness as i mentioned they don't really well first of all they do not account for any type of anomalous um perception or um cognition or behavior because they don't even accept that so that's outside the model so it works fine for their normal consciousness but if you want to include every part of the human experience then they fall very short and I think that's why you're starting to see these broader models saying maybe <laughs> consciousness is broader. Maybe it filters in. Maybe sometimes we can widen the filter and tap into something and get more information than normal. And that's where, I mean, that's where I stand now. Uh, like I've experienced yeah. it enough to know. And actually, um, I in the beginning, I would listen to Ram Das religiously, and I still do. I love him. And he would talk about right these experiences with his with his guru. And I remember that was happening in the beginning. And I remember thinking like, ah, oh, this is so wild, but I trust Ram Dass. <laughs> like, <laughs> I remember just thinking like, I don't know, I believe it. But this was really early on, like even before I had looked at the studies, I remember just thinking, yeah. this is incredible. Um, and then I found the studies and then it all fell into place. Yeah. Yeah, you, uh, you mentioned like Carlo Rovelli in your book, and a, f- and a few other physicists who are you know thinking in these bigger ways. I personally, I, I I've just come around to the the concept that I think the universe is way too complicated for us to grasp, and yet we are part of what's we're like a moment in the evolution of it, right? So we are part of it, and the universe. And we are not only able to to speak to each other, but we are literally each other. And any model you want to choose, there'll be some way you can communicate about something in that. And so I try now to just look at all the different ways you can think about things as being just a model through which we can interact in a certain way and gain a certain yeah. something. Yeah. So, um, so it's... 
I try yeah. to stay open. We don't know. I mean, who knows? <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I've I actually jotted something down because you said, um, oh, yeah, let's see. Something around like our mental capacity to perceive and describe th things, uh, it like exceeds or transcends the capacity. I don't know if I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing yeah. here, but you know that we may never be able to know all of that stuff. Yes, um, we it's 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 actually like when you learn neuroscience. When you learn neuroscience, actually, when you learn any biology, you're kind of amazed that anything works at all in our bodies because the amount of miracles that have to happen for everything to work and function together is incredible. And and neuroscience is the same. Our brains, like the 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 timing, the way things are connected, um, the, for everything to come together and for you to make for, to make sense to you is a miracle, honestly. So, and then the fact that you can interact with other people and be on the same, you know, like same consciousness, same level, right. it's, it's pretty incredible. And it, I mean, that is part of why it's so hard for us to explain it. Um, and that, but that's, and that's where you understand that our tools and our understanding and our models are all limited. Um, we have not come close to explaining this, this miracle really of life. Yeah. Yeah. Which keeps us interested, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's something <laughs> worth trying to to keep trying to do. Yeah. Um, so, what it, what are you doing? I mean, you wrote your book a while ago now, uh, and obviously took a long time to to do all the research that went into it. Where are you finding yeah. yourself now? Um, I actually, um, so I've been. Okay. <laughs> so let's see. Last year in November, a collaborator and I were like, what if we went to the biggest neuroscience conference and held a neuroscience and spirituality social? And we just like saw who shows up. And I didn't think anyone would show up, but we had 50 neuroscientists show up, like graduate students, postdocs, faculty. And we were blown away. And they wanted to stay in touch. They wanted a mailing list. They wanted references to read. And so we set up a list. We send out like a newsletter once a month just to highlight um, books and podcasts and articles for them. But we're going to organize another one this year in um, in November at the Neuroscience Conference in Washington, D.C. And we're going to actually put together a panel on alternative models of consciousness because there are neuroscientists who have alternative models. So we want to put together a panel on that. Um, and then her and I also we did organize and we want to do more these um, science and spirituality retreats. So, you know, we've met so many people interested, so many scientists interested in these topics, but they don't have community. They don't have other people interested. They don't even know where to go to read things. And they also need to feel safe. Um, oh, and you, you actually asked at the beginning, and I did want to talk about this, like the bridge between science and spirituality is interesting because you know, like you have to, just like old me, you kind of have to be delicate with their egos <laughs> and their, so you don't threaten them. And so I always joke, like, we, I want to do these retreats, but we cannot sage them when they walk in, you know, like, we uh -huh. can't be, yeah. like, we can't, <laughs> we can't be like waving Palo Santo at them. Like, it has to be done yeah. in a way that doesn't threaten them. Um, but where they can come and like learn about the science that they don't have time to read on their own, or they can come, you know, engage in like a, a class an energy class or have a reading or I don't know, we're, we're do, we have a bunch of ideas. 
So we're working on putting those together um, to kind of help people have a space to, and then we're going to do some for non-scientists too, because we actually had way more interest from people who weren't scientists than from scientists. So right. we're, we're planning, um, we're planning a few of those for the future. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I, it's such a, a ripe, I think, chapter break, you know, uh, people are searching and um, I find it in my, uh, in my own work that people come to yoga from all these different walks of life and it just enriches whatever it is that they're doing. So. Yeah. And yeah. I think also to answer your question at the very beginning, like I think that in my mind, and I've always felt this way, honestly, when people say supernatural or paranormal, I don't know, in my mind, it's like, it's one universe. It's one reality. It, 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 it really shouldn't, or it probably isn't science and spirituality like it's probably all just one thing and we just haven't chosen we, we haven't found the right lens to look through right. to see it all as one and I think that's just the challenge for us going forward but I think the first part to addressing that challenge is what my partner and I want to do is is kind of show hey like we we used to be where you are and um there's ways to dip your toe in without being scared and overwhelmed, but to just see that there's a little more to this reality than, than just our five senses. So absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and like you say, there, there are so many people who are interested in that in the science world as well. I remember a long time ago, I had a teacher trainee who was married to a geneticist. And she said, I teach these guys and they're scientists and I can't talk about any of this stuff. Her husband was like, the most regular student in my classes of anyone. So it's very common. It's yeah. it's much more common than people know. Um, I actually found another larger group. We made a group. We have like eighty people now, but I found a larger group that has six hundred scientists and scholars, like physicians, mm. and, and two thirds of them are anonymous because mm. of the stigma. So, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's uh, It's been delightful to get to talk with you and flesh out some of what I read in your book. And Thank you um, so much for having me. It was such a pleasure absolutely. to meet you. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you. That's today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening to Peter's podcast. I hope that you find real yoga, actual happiness, and deep living through your practice. Please support me on Patreon rate the podcast, and I'll see you next week. Namaste.